Welcome to Big Papa Rob's Podcast Story Rewind. I'm Big Papa Rob. Here I rewind the story of a person, place, or thing and tell you where it originated from. Today's story will be a little different than normal. I had a request to tell a story of a tragic fire that happened in a factory in 1911 that killed 146 workers. This will be the first story telling of tragic work-related incidents that led to the states and eventually our government to enact laws to protect the American workers. The request for this story led me to several stories. As some of you that know me outside of my podcast know that I'm a safety manager at my day job. The request made me dive deeper, and this first story is one of many that led to labor reform and the creation of OSHA as we know it today. Let's rewind the story of a factory that was in New York City. Isaac Harris and Max Belank. Self-made Jewish immigrants from Russia founded the company in 1900 and called it Triangle Shirtwaist. They moved the company into the ninth floor of the Osh building in 1902, right after the building was built. They expanded to the eighth floor in 1906 and up to the tenth floor in 1908 after profits hit one million mark, producing a thousand shirtwaists a day. Isaac and Max had earned the nickname Shirtwaist Kings. This company produced shirtwaists, which we now call women's blouses. Shirtwaists were women's button-down shirts that could be tucked into a skirt. This type of garment came out in the 1890s. Most of the employees were young Italian Jewish immigrant women. Some as young as 15, most were related to someone that worked there. They worked Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. and seven hours on Saturday with a half-hour lunch break. It was reported that during busy season, most of the time they didn't get a break. They were paid $6 to $12 a week, mostly piecework, and in some cases they were required to supply their own needles, threads, irons, and occasionally their own sewing machine. The working conditions were described as unsanitary. The women would have to leave the building to use the bathroom. So management began locking the steel doors to prevent interruption of work and only the foreman had the key. One young lady described her work area as people being so close to her on either side that she could feel their body heat. The workspaces were overcrowded with long tables. Most of the lighting in the factory was from gas lamps. There was not any fire safety equipment such as sprinkler systems or fire extinguishers in case of a fire, even though management knew the fabric was highly flammable. On the ninth floor, there were only two exits, and one of those kept locked all the time because owners were afraid of theft. This forced the employees to use only one exit so that they could be inspected before leaving at the end of the day. Saturday, March 25th, 1911, was a nice spring day with temperatures reaching 40 degrees. Work at the factory was winding down for the day for the 500 workers working that day. 
The employees were starting to leave at 4 p.m. on the ninth floor. The employees could only leave by the freight elevator. The stairwell by the freight elevator was blocked by crates. Employees were lined up at the freight elevator when fire and smoke began coming up from the elevator shaft. Witnesses' accounts say many tried to run back into the shop where the other elevator was, and they entered the shop area and flames were all around. Many tried to run back to the elevator that was working and started sliding down the elevator cables to try to escape. A lot of the workers were now aware of a fire escape on the side of the building. The few workers that knew the fire escape was there made their way to the windows by climbing over the machines and pushing boxes away that was blocking the fire escape and started going down the fire escape to the sixth floor. As the first few started entering the sixth floor, they looked up and saw the fire escape collapsing and people falling to their deaths on the ground. People became so desperate that they started jumping from the windows to their deaths to try to escape the fire. When one stairwell in the back became unpassable to go down, some people were able to make their way to the 10th floor and escape to the roof to get away from the fire. The 8th floor, where the fire started, one survivor on the eighth floor accounted that the boss's sister told him she smelled smoke. He was in the middle of the floor and looked toward the cutting tables and saw a red flame. He ran to the shelf near the freight elevator and grabbed buckets of water that was stored there and tried to put the fire out, but the fire just seemed to move across the floor. He tried to get more water near the front elevator and saw the flames were already reaching the ceiling and he wouldn't be able to make it. He and some of his co-workers got down on their hands and knees and crawled towards the freight elevator. Near the elevator was an open staircase and were able to escape to the street. By the time they made it to the street, bodies were already falling to the ground from the upper floors. The 10th floor, where most of the offices were, received a phone call from the 8th floor alerting them of the fire, and most of the workers on the 10th floor were the first to escape the building on the elevators. Others made it to the roof. There was a call made to the ninth floor, but the call went unanswered. The ninth floor had no warning until they saw the flames and smoke rising. The fire department received the alarm at 4.45 p.m. As the first fire wagon, remember back then most were horse-drawn, approached the building, the fire captain reported seeing a body falling from the roof of the building. He then ordered a second alarm at 448, then two more, one at 455 and one at 510, making this a five-alarm fire. As the firefighters started connecting the hoses, they had to move back because more bodies began to fall from above and endangered their lives. The ladders on the fire wagons were not long enough to reach beyond the sixth floor. The firefighters tried to using rescue nets to catch people that were jumping from the windows, but unfortunately these didn't work and people fell straight through the nets, smashing into the ground. Other firefighters were starting to make it their way up the stairs with hoses, putting out the fire, and when they made it to the eighth floor, they had to break down the door to gain entry and they quickly found 25 to 30 bodies piled up at the back windows. According to the reports after the fire, at approximately 4.40 p.m., a fire flared up in the scrap bin 
under one of the cutting tables on the eighth floor. It was believed to have been started by an unextinguished match or cigarette in a scrap bin containing two months' worth of cuttings. The first fire alarm was sent at 4.45 p.m. by a passerby on Washington Street. The building had two freight elevators, a fire escape, and two stairways, one leading to Green Street, the other to Washington Place. The stairwell to Washington Place had the door locked to prevent theft. Only one freight elevator was working, and the fire escape collapsed early in the fire. The Green Street stairway became quickly engulfed in flames and not accessible to exit the building. Within 18 minutes, it was over. Twenty victims fell 100 feet to their deaths when the fire escape collapsed. Forty-nine workers burned to death or suffocated by smoke. Thirty-six were dead in the elevator shaft, and 38 died from jumping from the building. Others succumbed to their injuries after the fire. In total, 146 people lost their lives. 123 were women and girls, and 23 men. The youngest girl was 14 years of age, and looking at the list of victims from the Cornell University website about the fire, most of the victims were teenagers, the oldest being 39 years of age. Of course, the owners of the factory escaped the fire by exiting the roof and into an adjoining building. Immediately after the fire, the owners declared in interviews that the building was fireproof and that it had just been approved by the Department of Buildings. But as reports came in about the doors being locked at the time of the fire, the district attorney's office filed indictments against the owners. They made bail of $25,000 and hired one of the most expensive lawyers in New York. April 11th, a grand jury indicted the owners on seven counts, charging them with manslaughter in the second degree, related to the doors being locked. On December 27th, 23 days after the trial started, a jury acquitted the owners of any wrongdoing, based on them having to determine whether the owners knew the doors were locked at the time of the fire. March 1913, the owners moved the Triangle Shirt Factory to a bigger location on West 23rd Street. On August of 1913, Max Blank was charged with locking one of the doors of his factory during working hours. He was brought to court and was fined $20, and the judge apologized for his imposition. In December of 1913, it was found that the factory had been littered with rubbish piled six feet high with scraps kept in non-regulated flammable wicker baskets. This time, he wasn't even brought to court. He was only served a stern warning. The owners collected a large chunk of the insurance money, $60,000 more than the fire cost them, in damages. This made the profit from the fire equaling about $400 per victim. There were 23 individual civil suits brought against the owners of the building. On March 11, 1914, three years after the fire, the owners settled. They paid a whopping $75 per life lost. That's just a slap in the face. 
1918, the owners closed the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. The business never recovered to the profit level it had seen before the fire because of the tainted reputations of the owners and the company image. Isaac returned to being an independent tailor, and Max continued to own other companies, including Normandy Waste Company. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was listed as the worst disaster in New York City until September 11, 2001, terrorist attack. In the aftermath of the fire, it inspired great campaign of workforce reform. About 30 separate laws were passed, including regulating minimum wage and working conditions. In the weeks to come, I will cover a few more work-related disasters and how these tragic events helped form and create what we know as OSHA today. Thank you for listening today. I hope you come back next week for my next story in this series. The stories will be ever-changing from historical origins of many things and stories of people you may not know their history. And again, I'm Big Papa Rob, and this was a Story Rewind, an independent podcast. Story Rewind is written and produced by Big Papa Rob, storyline edited by my beautiful wife Amanda, a.k.a. Big Mama. Today's music was Powerful Stylish Stomp Rock by Mark July from Pixabay. This was a Big Papa Rob podcast 2023.